The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour in search of a bottom. Whether we are getting closer or if more pain for your money is ahead. We discuss, we debate that. As always, with the Investment Committee, joining me for the hour today, Brenda Vangelo, Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, and Jim Labenthal. I'll take you to the wall, show you the markets, 12 noon in the east. Nasdaq's had a nice bounce here by a little more than 100 points, getting some help today from a bounce in names like AMD, NVIDIA. Uh, Tesla's having a nice move right now, up about 2.5%. Dow's still down by uh, 178, uh, as you can see there, but the S&P has just gone pause. The uh, Russell 2000's had a nice move of nearly 1%. Yields are at 282 on the 10-year, but we have a very big halftime headline for you today. And that is Jim Labenthal has finally cut his S&P target for the year. He goes from 5,030 to 4,850. Still about 1,000 points, 900, 1,000 points higher from where we are now. Jim, the floor is yours. Tell me why you did this, and then we're going to test you on, on what you still think could happen. Yeah, well, the reason I did it is because you have to, after a certain point in time, be aware of what's going on in the markets. And it's not that I wasn't aware, but it's, you know, how how much of the short-term noise do you want to respond to? Um, it got to a point where it had to be acknowledged that we've gone a heck of a lot lower than I thought we would. Um, Scott, to me, I think the more important part, which is what we're showing on the, on the screen here, is that this implies a 24% return uh, from here to the year end. And people may look at it and say, like, what the heck is this guy smoking? Um, um, th this is very simple. You're channeling We're calling my inner this thoughts. a correction. What's that, Scott? You're channeling my inner thoughts. Well, yeah, I've, I've worked with you for nine years. I can kind of somewhat get ahead of you. But uh, um, look, this is, this is a correction in our eyes. This is a mid-cycle growth slowdown that sets up for the next leg higher in economic expansion. Um, there is no way to prove that at this point in time. I have been and will be from time to time wrong because everybody is from time to time wrong. The question is whether this is a correction or a bear market. Um, I am laying it on the correction side. And the distinction for me isn't so much the 20% threshold, it's how long it takes to recover. And if you look at the past three corrections, all right, so you look at uh, December of 2018 to May of 2019, that was five months, we were up 24%. You look at the correction of, uh, I believe it was February of 2016, that may have gone to August of 2016, that recovery was 20% over six months. Go back to February 11, excuse me, October of 2011, to April of 2012, uh, that was a 29% recover, recover in six months. And that's what corrections look like. I have to say, 
They feel terrible at this moment with a lot of false bottoms. It feels awful and the predictions are dire and it's understandable. It is likely that in the near term for the next one to two quarters, there are downward revisions to EPS. However, it's also likely that inflation has peaked. Likely, can't prove it right now, likely. What I can say is the job market is extremely strong and it's just, even though it's a lagging indicator, I can't get to a near-term recession with how strong the labor market is. And if that's the case, and we don't have a near-term recession, then 2023 looks to be set up easily to earn $250 a share on the S&P 500. Puts us at 16 times right now. I heard Steve Weiss, who, by the way, has been very right, okay? I gotta, I gotta give credit where credit's due. He's been very right, okay? He said it can go down to 14, 15. Of course it can, of course it can. But my premise is, if it does, it's not gonna stay there for very long, and you run the risk of missing the rally off of this correction bottom, which we're somewhere near. Is it today? I don't know, but we're somewhere near it. I'll stop there. Okay, um, it would be far too easy for me to give Weiss the floor at this moment. And frankly, it would be unfair to you, Jim, because the red meat would just be too tasty. So Weiss, you just hold your tongue for a minute. <laughs> I want to go to Josh Brown, who's made the argument repeatedly that calling this anything but a bear market is delusional and is just straight wrong. So Josh, Jim's cut his target. He still thinks stocks can go up 24%. He hasn't taken his earnings projections down one bit, and he still refuses to call this anything but a correction. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. My turn? Josh. <laughs> if you well, want to be a wrong, smart aleck, I mean, can, we he, can just do, to do no, something no. else. I mean, it's a, it, listen, listen. We could play games with semantics or we could try to be constructive for the viewers. It's obviously a bear market. But I think what's more important now is to try to ask ourselves what would make us what would make us say that we've seen a lot of the damage that this bear market's going to do already in the rearview mirror and that we can be more constructive. And I've been pretty negative, but I don't want to be negative today. We had an 1,100-point uh, Dow wipeout yesterday. Uh, there's no reason to just keep rehashing the same negatives over and over again. So I want to point to a couple of things that maybe uh, are, are, I don't want to call it a glimmer of hope, but maybe are, are a positive sign. If May were to end right now, this would be the first month in a long time where a uh, 10-year uh, Treasury rate has declined. So we put in a high around May 6th. Now we have a higher low. I know we're talking about increments of just a couple of days, but still, uh, if, if the 10-year is not going appreciably above three and a quarter, and it stalls out here just below 3%, even if it sticks at these levels, that's a much better setup than where we were in February, March, April. So let's, let's put that aside for a second. Uh, crude oil, same thing. If 115 is, is going to be a ceiling, and I, I don't know that it will be, but if that is a new area of resistance and, and we've got some equilibrium there, again, the course of what happens in, in Eastern Europe is going to be what, what determines that going forward. But still, that's a positive sign, and that will start to show up in the, in the inflation data uh, in, in June if we stay around these levels, that lack of acceleration. Um, and then the last thing, Bank of America was talking about alternative uh, employment data. So as we all know, when you see the JOLTS number, 
and you see that that figure that there are 11 million jobs and 5 million job seekers, open jobs, 5 million job seekers. We know how tight the labor market is. We know that Walmart, Target, everybody on their call is citing tightness in the labor market being a, a serious area of pressure. It turns out, though, Jolts really is measuring the total amount of open jobs. There are other data sources that are just looking at new postings. New postings are collapsing. Six million down to two million. Here's why that's important. As we see that pressure in the labor market start to subside, as we see companies like Amazon and Netflix uh, and Walmart talk about being overstaffed or not needing as much labor as maybe they thought they would, it's not that we don't want people to get jobs. We just need to take that edge off of, of wage growth. And so these types of things, I think the Fed is betting on this, these types of things not any one of them specifically, but this accumulation of data points, anecdotes, um, corporate comments, all of a sudden, people might have been way too bearish, way too hawkish. And if that is, in fact, the case this summer, I think some of the pressure comes off of the Fed from having to go as far as the rhetoric makes it sound like right now they want to go. That would be positive for the markets. It would be constructive. It doesn't mean new highs. It doesn't mean Jimmy gets his price target. But that is directionally the kind of stuff that we want to start to see and hear. And right now, it looks as though we're in the opening innings of that. Okay. So, Weiss, Josh uses a good word. It's constructive. And that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. That's what I want you to be. Um, constructive. People watch the show. They follow your moves. Flip bullish, Weiss. They listen to... <laughs> <laughs> they list, that doesn't mean bullish, but let's have a constructive conversation to let people know what you guys, what, what you think is realistic or not. That's what I want to foster, a debate on what Jim has to say. Whether it's realistic that stocks could still go up 24% in an environment where margins are falling, falling fast, earnings are sure to follow. It's unavoidable. The economy is already showing some signs of, of weakness. Philly Fed was weak. Claims were up. LEI was down. Existing home sales were weaker. How do you see the landscape and whether we're close to a bottom or not? Well, uh, here's how I'd say it in, in relation or in response to Jim's comments, and I hope this is constructive. I don't believe he's smoking something at all. I actually think he's on much stronger stuff. And here's why I say that. The the Fed came out today in the, in the person of Esther George and basically said, almost, almost directly said, we don't care about where equity markets are. If they go down, they go down. That could help form our opinion in terms of whether risk assets are coming out of the market, and now I'm paraphrasing, and whether the uh, liquidity is tightening. They're looking for tightening liquidity, both in the credit market and in the stock market by having values continue to decline. That's really all you need to know from that standpoint. But we are starting to see layoffs, as you mentioned, you know, from the targets, or Josh mentioned, from Target and Amazon, etc. You're going to see more of that. Companies don't think short-term. They don't respond to market action in terms of their price targets or their business plans. They have to responsibly take a look forward. And I believe they're going to start to prepare for a recession. So, no, I don't think we're mid-cycle in the economy. You can't define mid-cycle by a Fed that's coming out. And this is where we differ in Jim's examples from what he showed about corrections in the market 
We're having the tightening from the Fed that we've never seen before against a liquidity backdrop that we've never seen before. And, so rates historically are still low. And yep. against an economic backdrop that is a little wobbly. And, and that is why. Without a doubt. That is why you have people like Scott Minard from Guggenheim, the chief investment officer, on with me yesterday on overtime, talking about the more aggressive Fed into a quickly slowing economy. And the casualty in all of that is stocks. Listen. Given the aggressive posture of the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, we're going to be meaningfully lower uh, this year in, in stocks before we find a bottom uh, because the Fed has made it clear that they do not have a put uh, on the stock market. They've made it clear to us that uh, we're, we're going to be at one and three quarter percent by July. I mean, I think a 50 basis point hike has been advertised for the next two meetings. And uh, they believe that uh, the neutral rate is somewhere higher. So um, yeah, I think at that point, uh, the Fed will be an overkill. Uh, the weakness in the economy will dominate. And, uh, you know, we could be setting ourselves up for, you know, a season of pain here, especially going mm. into September and October. That's um, Scott Minder with me at Overtime. Brenda, what do you make of those comments? Yeah, I think we're in such an extraordinary period of time, right, where we had an economic recovery that took two years, and it took a decade during the last economic cycle to get where we're at today. And the Fed has barely raised interest rates. But I think even if the Fed does raise to the one and three quarters percent, I don't know if it's going to be as disruptive as the market expects it will be if we look at the underlying health of the economy. But I also have to admit that, you know, we are in a period now where we're getting a lot of conflicting signals, especially as the consumer is shifting spending in a pretty meaningful way. And we're seeing all of those beneficiaries of the pandemic environment suddenly realizing um, seemingly overnight in a quarter's time that they, they need to cut back as some of the infrastructure and some of the hiring that took place in order to just keep up uh, during that pandemic period. But I don't think this means that the economic cycle is coming to an end. Um, and I agree with Jim in the sense that, you know, if we look at the consumer, the consumer's balance sheet is still really healthy. Uh, jobs are still plentiful, even though some of them might be going away, that people are still generally employed. And if we look at corporate earnings in aggregate for the first quarter, they were pretty good. And most companies exceeded expectations, obviously, with the exception of many well-known um, companies that have been in the news more recently. But I think overall, we still think if we look at an asset allocation and say, where does the biggest opportunity lie? We continue to think it is within the equity market at this point and are not expecting a recession here in the near term. You said something interesting and you said of the many things interesting that you said, of course, um, things are conflicting. Maybe I would argue at this point the signals were conflicting. Now they're becoming more clear. They're becoming much more clear. Earnings projections were too high, have been too high, and must come down. The only people who haven't realized that yet are Jim Labenthal, Brian Belsky, and the analysts no, 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 no. who refuse to drop earnings expectations. No, 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 no. I want to go back to what I said, okay? What I said is for the next couple of quarters, you should expect earnings to come down. However, commensurate with what Brenda is saying and, and addressing Scott Minard's comments, okay? If the Fed raises Fed funds rates to 2.5%, and the 10-year goes to 3% from wherever it is right now, 2.8%.
That's not going to deter Intel from building that $20 billion fab plant out in Ohio or any of the other many plants, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's automobiles, whether it's mines that have been announced here in the U.S. Cost of capital is going to go up, but not by enough to turn off those corporate CapEx plans and that supply chain onshoring that's going to go on in 2023, 2024, and 2025. This is what a mid-cycle growth slowdown looks like. You get a quarter or two of earnings per share revisions. And I said that at the top, okay? But what I am not doing is I'm not throwing in the towel on the long-term projections because the strength of corporate CapEx and supply chain onshoring is simply too strong. And when we talk about, you mentioned this, Scott, you mentioned some of the indicators right now that are that are showing weakness. If you look at jobless claims, for instance, today at 217,000 uh, for the last week, that's an extraordinarily low number. There's no other way to characterize that. And those people who have initial jobless claims will easily find other jobs. That's why the jobs opening uh, and labor turnover supply, the JOLT supply uh, report is 11 million versus 5 million unemployed. There are jobs for the taking. This is it. I'm, I'm sticking with this being a mid-cycle growth slowdown, and I don't think I'm going that to read I'm you, smoking anything. I'm going to read you a quote today from Bank of America, the, the desk at, at B of A. To your point on this labor market, the shortage, people who lose their jobs can just easily, in your words, easily find new jobs. The end of the labor shortage, quote, did companies double order people? They ask Walmart and Amazon, as Josh said, are the two biggest private employers and both have made comments on their calls on being, quote, overstaffed. The labor shortage narrative officially died in the past week. That's the commentary from corporate America. I hope they're right. And, you know, I said this the other day and. We speak in quips on the show, and you accused me of being insensitive. I think you know me better than that. You know I'm not insensitive. I don't want anybody to face hardship. But the truth of the matter is you want them from an economic and from a stock market point of view. You want Amazon and Target to have overordered That's not the point you're making. The point you're making, no, the point you're making is that they can let those people go because they've hired too many people, and those people who got let go can just walk across the street. They can have walk across the street human and find a new job just like that. Scott, have you the, talked to an airline human resources department recently? They I, are dying for people. We, they are dying for people. Have you talked to a hotel or a dining establishment? We have had they, this, they are dying for people. We have had this conversation on numerous occasions that if you want to make a simple point about the travel industry right now and hospitality, being it's reflective just, of where real demand may end up being, it's the wrong place to look because of all of the pent up demand. I think here's my point. Hey, I'm not Scott. missing what you're saying. I'm not missing what you're saying about the negatives. And you tweeted something today like Labenthal has no concerns in the world. Of course, I didn't I'm say worried that. about what I'm saying. I didn't say that. I'll go that. back to your tweet letter. I didn't say you have no concerns in the world. I said, do you still think that we're not getting we shouldn't be worried about a recession or a slowdown or that earnings need to come down? Because that's what everybody else is worried about. There is not everybody else. Not at all. Look, you're choosing who you're announcing on the show. All right. Look, I saw Brian Belsky the other day, um, Marco Kalanovic yesterday. I'm not alone. I'm not on some island. The fact of the matter is I go back to what I said at the beginning. There's no way to prove right now that we're in a correction, just like there's no way to prove that we're in a bear market. And I define that just to go back because I don't want to get into a spat with Josh. I define this as the recovery. Bear markets take years to recover. 
Corrections take months to recover from. We can have a longer discussion about that, but that's not a good use of our time. Bear markets the point don't is, necessarily right now, have the market to take, is fixated they, on the negative, and it's completely ignoring the positive. Do we have time to bring in Leesman right now? Will hey, you? Let's, Scott. Let's bring him in. Hold on, Steve. I want to bring in the other Steve. It's Leesman. The, the reason being of what you heard oh, Minard say, it plays right into this conversation, what the Fed is willing to do to get demand down. Esther George told Steve today, the stock market, they don't have a big problem with the stock market going down. Now, if the credit market seized up, maybe that would influence the Fed more than the stock market, Steve. But what about this idea that Minard uh, puts forth? Uh, that they are perhaps too aggressive in the face of what is an undeniably slowing economy. So I, I think the jury's still out on that, Scott. I, I don't think you could say that definitively. I think, uh, you know, Scott Minor has a point of view on that. But I think, you know, let, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that Esther George is a very, very nice person, one of the nicest Fed presidents I've known over two decades. She feels Jim Labenthal's pain. She's sorry for Jim Labenthal's pain. But she's not about to do anything about Jim Labenthal's pain and the pain of those um, <clears throat> people who are experiencing a downturn in the stock market. I came here to sort of figure out, was there some threshold that we were near of pain in the stock market? And uh, Esther George told me she's watching it. She's looking at it. She's aware of it. But it's not time to make that change right now. I think that was pretty clear uh, from, 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 the, from her comment. She still wants to move in 50 basis point increments, not ready to do 75, holding that back if it's necessary. Um, but what's happening now in the stock market, as far as she is concerned as a voting member of the Federal Market Committee, is what has to happen, both in terms of tightening financial conditions as well as a reduction in the wealth effect from the stock market in order to get inflation under control. And that's pretty much where the Fed is hell-bent on doing it. Whether or not, as Scott Minard is positing here, they do it until something breaks. She said that she is watching certain things out there that make her a little bit optimistic, that there's some consumer preferences out there that she's seeing. People shy away from higher prices. Um, has some sense that maybe the Fed does not have to go quite as far. I threw her theory at me, or my theory at her, which is that um, uh, the Fed may have to go as high as 4 or 5%, and she said maybe we don't have to. She didn't say she wouldn't. She said maybe we don't have to. Look, Steve, you're... you're you're the senior economic supporter, and you are the closest thing we have to an in-house economist. Do, do you think that earnings projections where they are at 250 for 2023 are too high? You know, um, I would say yes, but it's very interesting to me. I, I know you're going to sort of put the back of your hand at this answer here, Scott. Corporate profits as a percentage of GDP, in other words, historical relationship, are very high. There is room for corporate profitability to fall, give more money to workers, and for corporations to remain extraordinarily profitable. Um, I think it's really interesting when this inflation broke out, companies navigated it very well. And now you have some companies have sort of reached a limit. I thought the, um, I believe it was Walmart that said they do not on a cultural basis, want to charge so much more because they're thinking of the long term. And right now, Wall Street doesn't want to give Walmart credit for that thinking of the long term of driving away customers. It's very interesting to watch that, Scott, and see that there is some limitation. And by the way, that plays right back into the Esther George interview, seeing there are some limits to how far customers will go to pay up a price and a limit to the uh, uh, prices that these companies will charge. It does help to attenuate the inflation problem over time. Steve, I appreciate it. And I got to go because I have breaking news. Uh, we'll see you soon. It's Steve Leisman. Elon Moy is in D.C. Gotcha. Uh, for us right now. Elon.
Well, Scott, the House has now passed a bill that would make it illegal for oil companies to price gouge during national emergencies. This bill gives the FTC the authority to go after companies with unconscionably excessive price increases. And it instructs the agency to focus on companies with $500 million in revenue or more. Now, this vote was pretty much right down party lines. The tally was 217 to 207 Four Democrats voted against it, and all Republicans opposed it. So this was primarily a messaging document for Democrats to show that they're trying to do something about inflation. It does not have a chance of passing in the Senate, but it has been enough to get the business community riled up. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce warning that the bill amounts to price controls, and it could lead to gas lines and rationing. They're tracking how lawmakers voted on this. But again, the House passed a bill to prevent price gouging by oil companies, 217 to 207. Scott. All right. That's Elon Moy for us. Uh, with the latest there in Washington, thank you very much for that. Coming up, Cisco is hitting new lows today, and Brenda is making a move in the market as well. We have lots to talk about when we come back. The Dow is down 200. The Nasdaq hanging on to a three-quarters of 1% gain. We'll be right back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. You see uh, S&P 500 down uh, still by six points. Worst performer in the S&P today is Cisco, plunging after earnings, down nearly 15 percent. Back to Jim Labenthal. So what's your view uh, here, given what you got from the report and what you heard from Chuck Robbins this morning on CNBC of her a stock you own? Yeah, well, of course, it's disappointing to see a result like this. And I have to note that for most of the last two years, it's been one step forward, one step back. You get a good report, you get a bad report the next quarter, and it all seems to have come down to supply chains, uh, particularly now with China. Although that seems like that's going to pass pretty soon, so it doesn't deter me from the long-term thesis. And if people look at this and say, well, wait, you know, why would he stick with a stock? It's down 12, 13 percent today. You got to understand that this stock over the many, many years does exactly what I want to in the portfolio, which is basically give the S&P 500 return, add a little dividend on top of it and not give you all that much drama. I mean, even today, today stinks rather, but um, you know, it's not like it's a Netflix or a Facebook down 40% day. And funny thing is, is if you put up a five-year chart of Cisco and compare it to some other, like those two names I just mentioned, you actually find it outperforms. 
That's what you want from a stock like this. You want it, This is what we mean when we talk about a steady eddy. You got to hang on to it, though. You can't get thrown from the horse on a bad day like today. You've got to stick with it over the years because it does perform in line with the S&P 500 and give you that dividend yield on top of it. Josh Brown, your read on CSCO here is what? Yeah, I actually think if you if you listen to what Chuck had to say, it's not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. They could do a lot. They could have done this past quarter a lot more business if they weren't contending with lockdowns in Shanghai, which obviously is an important market, um, and and not being able to do business in Russia anymore. So this is not an issue. This is really an issue that. A lot of companies are facing right now. It's not that people aren't, there's no demand or that they can't close contracts. They literally cannot fulfill, and nobody can at the rate that they want to. So I wouldn't look at this as there's a problem with Cisco's business. The only drawback, though, bigger picture is this is basically GDP plus or minus a couple of percentage points on either side. It needs exactly the world right. to grow in order to grow. Exactly and so right. this is not going to be a great environment for names like that. But that's in the short term. If you're a long-term Cisco believer, I don't think you should be exiting the stock on a day like today. Jim, quick, last and quick. Yeah, I, I love what he said. He said kind of what I'm saying a different way. Uh, yeah, it's GDP. Um, you know how I feel about GDP over the coming years. That's what I'm looking for from this stock. This is not a stock like a Qualcomm or an NXP that you're looking for some shoot-the-lights-out performance. You're looking for this to track the S&P 500 over years. All right. Good stuff, guys. Uh, Frank Holland has the headlines for us. Hey, Frank. Scott, here's our news updated this hour. Hundreds more Ukrainian fighters who made their stand inside Maripol's bombed-out steel plant, they're now surrendering. This according to Russia. This brings the total to over 1,700 Ukrainian soldiers now in Moscow's hands. The Red Cross is working to register these soldiers as prisoners of war to ensure their humane treatment under the Geneva Conventions. Officials within the Massachusetts Department of Health are confirming a case of monkeypox here in the U.S. The single case came in an adult male who recently traveled to Canada. Monkeypox is very rare, but potentially serious. It's a viral illness that has been recently spreading all around the world. And the CDC is now investigating at least 180 cases of children contracting severe hepatitis from an unknown cause. Cases have been found in the U.S. and abroad. The CDC has found at least five deaths so far although there do not appear to be any deaths since February. And the House passed legislation late Wednesday night that would bolster federal resources to prevent domestic terrorism. The nearly party-line vote was in direct response to the racist mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Much more halftime coming up after the break. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Let's revisit the question we asked at the very top of the show. Are we near a bottom? Some pretty interesting moves in the market, right? NASDAQ's positive. By three quarters of one percent, 
Russell's outperforming today by a little better than 1%. Uh, that's the Russell 2000, excuse me. The Russell, uh, Russell 1000 is up by about 8 Okay, we're not going to do that yet. Uh, we're working on a guest, and we'll, we'll bring him in when we, when we have him. We're just having a – well, now I'm told we have him. Boy, the minute-by-minute technical moves on television are fun, aren't they? Jonathan Krinsky is the chief market technician at BTIG. You are there. I see you. Can you hear me? I got you, Scott. Okay, good stuff. Um, I mentioned some of the things in the, in, in the market uh, today. Chips led on the way down. They're having a nice bump. Are, are we near – the bottom, do you think? So, you know, there's always the two questions. There's the bottom and there's a bottom. And we were on with you last week and we kind of highlighted that there were some of our capitulation checklist signals that did get checked enough that we thought we could get a, a nice rally back up to 4,200. Um, but we thought it wasn't going to be the ultimate bottom. And, you know, I think the action yesterday uh, really speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, you guys are having the conversation, are we in a, in a bull or bear market? There's many different ways to define it. You know, we would argue you are in a bear market and, you know, the action you saw yesterday is just not consistent with the bull market activity, right? And so the question is, you know, not so much how high can we go? It's, it's are we done with this downtrend? And I think the, the answer from our work is, is no. Um, you know, one of the things that we have been looking for is, you know, finally all the different areas of the market that have been holding up well to finally get hit. And yesterday we got the consumer staples. They were one of the best performing areas of the market. Yesterday was actually only the, the sixth time in our data back to 1990 where we had consumer staples and consumer discretionary down 6% or more on the same day. Um, and so really that leaves utilities and energy are really the two remaining holdouts in the market, um, along with some of the mega cap tech names, which have started to, to break down at this point. So ultimately, you know, could we have some more chop throughout the summer? I think that's perfect, perfectly reasonable. But we see 3,400, 3,500 in the S&P as kind of the, the ultimate downside. What's it tell you that the VIX is falling today and it's 30? VIX is at 30. Yeah, you know, the volatility side of things is one of the areas that, you know, we we felt has not triggered that full-fledged capitulation. We actually look more so than the absolute level of VIX. Um, if you look at pretty much every durable bottom over the last 20 years, you get a, a point where spot VIX relative to the second or third month VIX future actually is at like a 10-point premium. Um, and we just haven't seen anything close to that in the last, throughout the entire year, really. Um, even yesterday and yesterday's move, it was barely uh, inverted at all. So, you know, the fact that it's hanging around 30 today, I don't think is that meaningful. I think really in, in true panic, you get that inversion. We haven't seen that at all. How much of your maybe ultimate level depends on a recession or not? Because I, I, you're, I obviously know, I mean, in looking at some other people who are talking about where stocks could go, if you think it's we need a recession playbook, so to speak, they may be near the targets you're talking about. Are you thinking about recession as you're trying to set a target? Yeah, I mean, look, if you know, clearly you can look at the data and, and most recessions do involve a bigger drawdown on the S&P than, than we've had thus far, right? And if we're, we almost got to 20%. Um, clearly you could go sector by sector and argue that you know, certain of the high growth areas of the market have quote unquote priced in a recession. But from our perspective, um, the move in staples yesterday was telling that the market is is 
getting closer and closer to pricing um, or, or to anticipating that recession because up until now, Staples had been outperforming and actually going up in a real recessionary environment. Staples finally, you know, they, they actually continue to outperform, but they go down in absolute terms mm. um, and utilities would be the same, would be the same thing. And then really the last shoe to drop is, is energy, right? I mean, we've had a confluence of factors that have kept energy and crude prices elevated, but ultimately in a recessionary environment, um, you know, energy demand falls. And that's when, when energy rolls over, we saw that in 2008 where energy rallied into the summer of OE. And that was kind of the last, uh, the last shoe to drop. And so I think, you know, that playbook is kind of uh, analogous to what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I appreciate it. it Help us understand this a little bit better. Jonathan, thank you. That's Jonathan Krinsky coming up a major hedge fund winding down. The fallout is coming up next. that we've lost a little bit of steam out of that NASDAQ uh, move that we had uh, just a short time ago, really led by uh, some of the chip names, not really participating. Apple today still down. That's why the man uh, right in front of me is sitting here at the desk with me, Steve Kobach. There's a headline that's pretty interesting from Apple that just crossed. What do we know? Yeah, so crossing Bloomberg right now and saying that the headset that we've been hearing about coming from Apple for so long, the board has tested it, which is kind of a signal that, hey, we're about to announce this to the world. We're going to show the final product to the board and get it out there. Now, there have been rumors all over the map of when this thing is actually going to be unveiled. So if I'm, Scott, if I'm going to read between the lines here and just based on my knowledge of how Apple does these things, Mm -hmm. I would not be surprised we see it come out this fall with the iPhone event and then go on sale actually about six months later, early in 23. Uh, And by the way, Apple declined to comment on this report. Put into perspective, it would be the biggest new product Really, since the watch. Right, so right. It's being and and right? this is the thing they think one day could replace this thing. So this is a first step for Apple to really everyone ask, what's after the iPhone? What's after the iPhone? This might be it. You know, uh, Steve Weiss, the, the man who claims Apple d- uh, never innovates, um, and I don't want to get into a debate <laughs> on that, but I have to mention that every time I bring it up. You've actually substantially trimmed your Apple position, right? And even more so at this juncture than a few days ago when I last asked you about it. Yeah, I mean, if you don't want to bring it up, then don't bring it up. That's what I'd say. I Look, know, but I like, I tra- I like I, just jabbing I, you with I, that. Every, every opportunity I get. But please I, carry I, on. I know you do. <laughs> carry on. Okay. Uh, look, it, it was a market call, number one. Number two was a consumer call. And number three was a valuation call. So consumer products companies should sell for lower multiples. Apple should sell at a premium to those multiples. But I think at some point, given how poorly the wireless companies are doing, that the subsidies are in, you know, are in danger, frankly, as they've talked about in the past. So who's going to go out and spend $1,000 for a new phone? Now, a new product, obviously, would be very positive for the stock. Mm. And Apple doesn't have to innovate. I agree with that. They can just make things better and sell it to the ecosystem. But it's a retailer. That's what it is at the end of the day, and the retail environment's not particularly strong. So that's yeah. why I sold three-quarters of the position. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, look, unless you look at it a little bit differently and think of it as a, um, almost like a luxury retailer or a premium retailer, which may not do as bad as some of the other traditional retailers, but that's anybody's guess. Josh Brown, uh, what do you make of this news? I don't, I don't know much about what it's going to look like or, or how great version one's going to be. The, app, the original Apple Watch was kind of a bust. It wasn't until they got into version three. Um, the AirPods were a hit right off the bat. So it's kind of hit or miss when they launch a new product. I wouldn't bet against them. I'm a long-term Apple shareholder. Um, this is a name that has now broken the October support. 
after having broken the March support. Um, the buy, you know, Buffett aside, the buyers just are not there. I think there's risk down to a buck twenty-five for Apple. Uh, that's where I would get very bullish on it. In the end, though, it's still a, a twenty-two times forward, uh, six times sales. Arguably deserves that premium multiple. I agree with Weiss. I just don't know how much of that premium multiple it'll be able to keep, especially if the market environment stays the way it is. So uh, I would not be a buyer because of the headset. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, this is obviously just an early report, uh, Steve, but a consumer product launch during a market like we have now yeah. and during a period of economic concern would be interesting. The news itself or the report that they've shown it to the board would suggest that maybe they're undeterred by the current environment unless it were to deteriorate anything further. Who knows? Yeah, but this is the concern at the beginning of COVID, if you remember. How dare they have an event and announce a new iPhone while we're all locked down and worried about our spending and so forth? And they did just fine. So, you know, they have to keep moving along. Business has to keep going. So and they have they've been working on this for the better part of the last decade, Scott. So they need to show their work. Yeah, for sure. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Steve Kovac. Up next, one hedge fund burned by the meme stock mania is now shutting down. We're following the money there. Plus, during May, we are celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's our own Seema Modi, CNBC Global Markets Correspondent. Growing up, it was rare to see someone from my community leading a major corporation. 1.3 billion Indians, where were they on Wall Street? There was Indra Nui at Pepsi, Ajay Bunga at MasterCard, but that was pretty much it. Just in the last year, we're starting to see more come to the forefront and be recognized for their talent. A wave of new CEOs of Asian origin. The new CEO of FedEx, Raj Subramaniam. There's Sonia Nadella at Microsoft, Sundar Pichai at Alphabet and Google. Representation matters. It provides inspiration for the next generation. The big news in the hedge fund world today, Melvin Capital winding down, returning cash to its investors. Leslie Picker has been following the money uh, on that story, Les, for quite some time. And there were indications over the last several weeks that this was taking place, uh, at least if you watch some of the market activity and maybe speculated a little bit. There's that. There's also that Citadel, which was a big investor in Melvin after the meme stock mania, uh, did decide to redeem. But if you recall, Melvin Capital spent most of its lifespan under the radar before bursting into the mainstream last year. Amid that meme stock frenzy, the firm was bearish on GameStop and amid some other wrong way trades, performance suffered. The firm lost 39 percent in 2021 and another 23 percent in the year through April. Melvin had been in discussions with investors to restructure the fund to once again charge performance fees before recouping those losses against industry practice. Ultimately, investors pushed back and Melvin paused these plans yesterday. They got the news that Melvin ultimately decided to shut down. In, an, in a letter, founder and chief investment officer Gabe Plotkin wrote, quote, the past 17 months has been an incredibly trying time for the firm, adding that he's given everything he could, but more recently, that has not been enough to deliver the returns that investors res- uh, expect. Now, the whole GameStop phenomenon had really shaken many short sellers from the market. That's kind of the legacy here, fearful that they could get squeezed. But lately, hedge funds are actually dipping their toes back in amid the market volatility. A new note by Goldman Sachs out just a short while ago said hedge funds ramped up their short positions yesterday amid the market sell-off. The firm said net selling on its book 
on its prime book was driven by short sales rather than outright selling, which also indicates hedge funds were not the main driver of yesterday's price decline. Scott. They're certainly being a lot more quiet, though, these days about their shorts. And that is probably the uh, most everlasting, uh, largest everlasting change that we'll see. Les, thank you. That's Leslie Picker. We have Brenda Vangelo's latest move in the market. We'll do that next. Told you Brenda Vangelo was making a move in the market. And uh, maybe it's not that surprising. It's a small position, Brenda, but you did sell Coinbase. Talk to me. We did. We sold it for a couple of reasons. One, you know, management has had this unwavering commitment to continue to invest in their business. That's a change from last year, but they're doing it at the expense of profitability. And I think in this market, it's just not what investors want to see right now, um, even though it's likely the best thing for the business. And on top of that, just the backdrop for cryptocurrency. I think we've had a great test for cryptocurrency, and it hasn't gone very well in terms of acting as a diversifier in uncertain times and against an inflationary backdrop. Mm-hmm. So I think we could be in for a situation where adoption just isn't as great as we expect it to be. Inter- the next Josh, quickly for, from you, I'd love your take on just what you've witnessed in crypto over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we we uh, we have a crypto index that we built with uh, Wisdom Tree, and I look at it every day. And I I would have to conclude the same thing that Brenda did. This was a big test. Uh, it was a rare test, and in the end, basically you got Nasdaq-like exposure from all of the cryptos to varying degrees, but directionally all the same. It may not always be that way, but it is that way now. And so I do understand not wanting to be in a Coinbase. If the volatility is going to continue, they will feel it every bit as much as every other broker dealer, whether they're selling stocks or coins. Gotcha. All right. Final trades. They're coming up next. Four o'clock today in overtime, PIMCO's Aaron Brown, Rockefeller's Avery Sheffield, Eric Jackson. They'll all join me, take some stock on this market where they think your money is going next. See you in about three hours' time in the OT. Let's do final trades. Brenda, go first. Um, TKX. This one's really a standout in the retail environment. Reported a great quarter. They're also a huge beneficiary of excess inventory in retail um, in general. So I think they should continue to do well. All right. Uh, Josh Brown. JP Morgan, eight times earnings, three and a quarter percent dividend yield. If it's not pricing in a recession yet, it's getting awfully close. I would be a buyer here in the low 100s. Steve Weiss. I covered GBTC, and I took a small, long position in, uh, in Dix today. Even if they cut earnings in half, it's still only 11 times earnings. They report in 25th. Farmer Jim, you got 45 seconds. I saved you for last. If you want to expand on where we started this conversation, I appreciate you being so open and honest with people. Yeah, I think the only thing I will say is we only find out who's right in hindsight. There's no way that I can pound the table and say that I know. I don't know what the future holds. I use my experience and analytical ability to give you the best I've got. Obviously, people are going to disagree with that. I understand it and I respect it. Um, Anyway, thank you for letting me say that. Um, Final trade is NXP semiconductors. If, as I believe, uh, we're in a growth slowdown and we're going to come roaring back next year, this is exactly the sort of stock in exactly the sort of sector that you want to be in. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, and, And interesting that, again, we started the show by noting AMD, NVIDIA, some of the chips which had led on the way down, had come off the bottom. Maybe that was a positive sign. NASDAQ's trying to hang positive, but we'll see if it can. Uh, but it's certainly an unsettled market environment. I'll see you in a few. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 